You're listening to audio from Liberty Baptist Church. Like Amy read, we will be in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4 this morning, uh, and a lot is there to be uh, discovered, and a lot of good stuff. Um, we will really just skim the surface of it uh, as a whole. Uh, but if you were with us last week, we were in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, and you noticed something, that there was a, uh, a noticeable shift in the preacher's outlook and his uh, understanding of life. He has come to this place of, in a sense, recognizing the vanity and the futility in living a life that is only ever focused on vanity and futility. Uh, in, in other words, he said to himself, if all I ever focus on is the sadness and the despair on this, of this life, then my life will always be sad and full of despair. Uh, you and I are merely products of what we choose to set our attention on. Uh, whatever we focus on, whatever we think, that is ultimately what and who we are. You only ever focus on the sadness to be found in the broken world that is life under the sun, and you'll only ever be sad. Uh, we are what we focus on. Uh, and in chapter 3, the preacher chooses to expand, uh, in a sense, his focus and his view. Multiple times I've used the illustration of uh, he's seeing the world, as we often do, as if his face is smudged up against a stained glass window. Uh, it just looks dark and bleak, and you don't see the beauty in the picture unless you take a step back to see the fullness uh, of what is truly there. And in chapter 3, uh, the preacher seems to take a step back. He steps at least far enough back uh, that he's now able to see God in the picture. Now, he's now able to see the brokenness of this life in relation to the goodness and the generosity of God. Uh, or more specifically, he's able to see that the world works in relation to the sovereign control of God. It's no longer a random, uh, a random line of events that only cause sadness and despair. He now see the way, he sees the way that God yields or, or wields these things uh, for our good and for his glory. The preacher has seen and understood that there truly is a time for everything under the sun. Uh, and these times are not only appointed by God, but they are also the very means through which God draws us to himself. Uh, again, the times and the seasons are wielded by God for our good, even when it doesn't feel good. They're wielded for our good and for his glory. The times and seasons when in God's hands... And this is basically to sum up the message of last week. The times and seasons when in God's hands are a gift of His grace to usher us into a deeper awareness of His presence in all things. Uh, and for the moment, at least, for the moment, the preacher is coming to terms with this. Uh, and it seems as if he has turned the page on despair and he's... Uh, to give us a picture, it's almost as if he settles into, uh, he settles into the wisdom of a life that is filled with brokenness, yes, and yet shepherded moment by moment by God. Uh, and that takes us into chapter four, uh, where the moment of hope seems to all but disappear uh, as he 
looks back out at the world and sees all the oppression and all the suffering. Uh, one commentator says that in chapter 3, the preacher flirts with hope, uh, but soon returns to despair when he considers all the injustice that's found in the world. Uh, another commentator would say that verse 2 and 3 in chapter 4 are the two saddest verses in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and, and this morning, uh, here's my hope as we approach this. Uh, what I want us to do is approach this text with uh, the life-centering uh, New Testament wisdom of Jesus as our guide. Uh, Ecclesiastes, as we've found out, uh, Ecclesiastes is all about life's biggest questions and concerns. Uh, and what is our purpose on this earth? There's nothing uh, trite or simple about the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, which is hard and difficult, but also necessary for us to think through uh, life with these lenses. Uh, Ecclesiastes is all about living a life that is centered around something uh, that's grounded and meaningful, a life that is good and profitable. The preacher's search uh, is for gain. He wants to live a life that means something, that matters on this earth. Ultimately, all the preacher wants is the same thing that you and I want, which is to be happy, to be fulfilled, and to live a life that matters. And take all of those things and pursue them in a God-honoring and a God-guided way. Amen. Uh, when I was younger, me and my dad used to love... Uh, which I think it's still on TV, probably in season 23 by now. Uh, we used to love this show called Gold Rush. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, but whether we were at home uh, or at our hunting club at the time, which had the luxury of TV, that was about the only luxury it had, uh, but we would flip over to the Discovery Channel uh, and catch up on the saga that was the life of this group of men that sold everything and moved to Alaska to mine for gold, uh, which sounds really fun for a month or two. And then after that, I don't know how they did it. Um, but we just wanted to follow the saga of these people's lives and see what all they did. Uh, and their whole setup was essentially this. Uh, they dig out the land. And again, this is all big machinery. This is not in a river with a pan. Uh, they dig out the land and they dump all this dirt, tons and tons of dirt into this elaborate system of big machinery. Uh, and they try to find and separate the gold uh, from the mud uh, because apparently, and I guess this is why not many people do it, gold is hard to find. Uh, that's probably why it's so expensive. But they do this to separate all the gold from the mud. And one of the things they would dump all this dirt into was this uh, large table-like thing, anywhere from the size of this pulpit to the size of a PT Cruiser. Uh, and they would dump all the, we hate the metric system in America, so I'm going to use a PT Cruiser to explain how we measure things. Uh, but they would dump all this dirt onto this big table type thing. Uh, I don't know the official term for it, but I'm pretty sure they just called it a shaker. Uh, and as you can guess, it shook. And they would dump all the dirt on there and shake and shake and shake. And what would happen is the heavier and the weightier gold would get separated from the dirt and fall to the bottom. Uh, and that was the goal. That's how they got the gold out of all the dirt. Uh, and I tell you that 
uh, one, to let you in on Mighty My Father's personal life and how we enjoy shows together, uh, but more, more for our purposes this morning, uh, to give you a picture of the drive and the purpose behind the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, because of sin, as the preacher has made clear to us, uh, as if we needed Ecclesiastes to tell us these things, but because of sin, the life that you and I live here under the sun is fractured uh, and broken. And it's filled with, if you follow the metaphor here, it's filled with a whole lot of dirt. Uh, but as you'll see as we go through this book, the preacher is trying to make it clear to us that there's still, regardless of all the dirt, there is still a very real presence of gold uh, to be found in this life, which is God's goodness and His generosity and His presence in the midst of all this brokenness. What the book of Ecclesiastes is, is it is like that violent shaking table of machinery uh, that's only goal is to help us to find the weighty and the meaningful gold uh, that often just gets lost inside the endless dirt that you and I fill up our lives with. Uh, and here's how that relates to the wisdom of Jesus. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, we enter into this conversation or this scene that is marked by conflict uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders are confronting Jesus, uh, as they like to do. Uh, and they're trying their best to make a spectacle out of him in this moment and prove uh, that he's a fraud by embarrassing him and humiliating him with their questions uh, and their traps and their uh, East Coast intellect, as we would say. Uh, but it's in this trap by the Pharisees that we get one of the most helpful sentences for us as followers of Jesus. One of the most helpful things that Jesus uh, ever utters in his uh, short time on earth. Uh, what Jesus does in this passage is he gives us a clear picture of what the gold uh, that life with God will and should look like uh, for you and for me. Uh, he is in this moment, essentially he's the one that's shaking the dirt and saying to all of us, look, uh, here's the gold that you've been after. This is what it means to be happy and fulfilled and to live well. Your life will be meaningful and mattering if it looks like this. And here's what he says in Matthew 22. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. If you can picture this scene, almost as the opposing boxer in the corner of the ring. He gathers together with his team. Uh, they gather together, and one of them, a lawyer, Ask him a question in order to test him. He says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, uh, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the Shema here. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he adds this, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Uh, I love this. Uh, Jesus just lays it out. All his cards are on the table. And what he is essentially teaching us here is that life 
tends to fall into place. Or another word to pick up the language we've been using, we tend to go with the grain of the way that God created this world. And we tend to be marked by joy, even in the midst of sorrow, when we are centered around those two things. Making our entire life revolve around the center of gravity of each of our lives as believers revolves around loving God and loving others. Uh, and it's this lens that we're going to see our text through uh, this morning to help guide us. Uh, and specifically the second half of this text when Jesus says you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. Uh, in the preacher's pursuit of gain and meaning under the sun. At this point, he considers two ways of life. Uh, this, this chapter, if you're familiar with Psalm 1, this chapter has a, uh, a fragrance of Psalm 1 to it. There are essentially two paths that lay in front of him. And he's asking us to choose. He considers both and he shares his findings with us and then offers us the wisdom on the best path to walk down moving forward. Uh, so that will be where we're headed this morning in the lens we use uh, to do that. But let me pray for us and we will uh, get started. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that, um, Lord, you don't leave us to our own devices in what you expect of us here on earth. Not only do you make the path clear, not only do you uh, make righteousness and good and life, uh, not only do you make all these things clear to us, but Lord, you also give us the power of your spirit and the grace we need uh, to accomplish these things. And Lord, praise your name that your word says that you complete the work that you started in us, that it didn't begin with us, and Lord, it does not end with us. God, I pray that you would meet us here this morning. Show us what it, what it looks like for us to love our neighbor and love ourselves in the way that we respond to oppression, in the way that we pursue gain and life and abundance uh, under the sun in the short time that we're here. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. God, I pray that the meditation uh, of all of our hearts in this place this morning and that the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable and God-honoring and Christ-centered and soul-warming. God, all these things would be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in your son's beautiful and holy name I pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. <coughs> uh, so if you are a note taker, our first point this morning is this. We're going to focus in on the opposite of loving our neighbor and ourselves. The first point is this, hating my neighbor and destroying myself. Again, you shall love your neighbor as yourself will be our guide uh, as we come to these different ways of life or these different paths presented by the preacher. So point uh, number one, hating my neighbor and destroying myself. Verse one through six says this, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. 
Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Now, up to this point, the preacher uh, in Ecclesiastes has considered and talked about uh, the evil that is done under the sun in a very generalized way. But what we see in chapter 4 is what, uh, what brings him back to this place of despair and darkness is that he, he can't help but to go there when he zooms in on the evil that is done to particular people uh, in a particular place uh, and done by particular people. He considers oppression and injustice, uh, how it's always the weak and it's always the defenseless who are the victims and how the power always rests on the side of the oppressors and not on the oppressed. Uh, he sees that the worst part of the oppression is that the, uh, the victims go through it alone. There's no one to comfort the victims. Uh, to be oppressed is often to be alone. It's to be unheard uh, and uncared for and unseen. Uh, or to put it in modern language, the preacher is now describing how it feels to wake up every morning, to turn on the news, and only be confronted with the newest tragedy of the day. Uh, he's explaining the heartbreak and the despair uh, that you and I often feel as we drive by American flags at half-mast, and we're not even sure why they're at half-mast, because tragedy after tragedy after tragedy continues to happen. Uh, and some commentators want to take his despairing words here and explain them away. And make, uh, and, and make them too simplistic and too trite by saying that he has reverted fully back to seeing that this life under the sun is all there is and God is not in the picture at all. Uh, but again, that just seems unhelpful and it doesn't seem fair to the text or uh, fair to us. I believe that the preacher has God in view. He, at the very least, has some sense of God's presence and His sovereignty in the world. We see it in the previous chapter. Uh, but what He does in these verses, again, like the violent table meant to shake us, He does with shocking language. He conveys the sobriety with which we are expected to see the oppression and the injustice and the hurt that is done under the sun. And here's where our New Testament lens of the wisdom uh, of Jesus is helpful in learning from this text. Again, I love the Gospels because we get a front row seat of how Jesus himself uh, responds to oppression and injustice and in suffering. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, uh, we enter into another scene and Jesus heals this man who, had, uh, who was deaf and who could also hardly speak. Uh, but again, he doesn't do it in a way that's trite or simplistic uh, and makes no mention of the hurt of the man as if he's healed now so all his hurt is invalid. He says this in Mark chapter 7. It says, Then he returned to the region uh, of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. 
And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven. And this is the language we want to see. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Emphata, uh, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Uh, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Praise God for that story. Uh, but notice the language in there as he goes to heal him. He says, looking up to heaven, he sighed or he groaned. And he said to him, be opened. And you see that very same language in the next chapter. Uh, Mark chapter 8, the Pharisees uh, come again and begin to argue with Jesus. It says this, starting in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In both of those instances, the same word is used when describing Jesus as sighing or groaning at the sight of sin and suffering. Now, it's the very same Greek word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 22 when he says that creation itself, creation itself is sighing and groaning over the trauma and the corruption of the curse of sin. Creation itself longs to be deeply redeemed and made new. So that shows us we shouldn't be shocked at the language of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. Uh, though he does use more shocking language, his response is actually the same response that Jesus himself has when he comes face to face with a, a damaged and a handicapped body or when he is confronted by a callous and an unbelieving heart. Jesus sighs and he groans because sometimes the weight of this broken creation deeply grieves us. And that is a right and a righteous response. Jesus himself responds that way. Uh, living in a broken creation is a given for us all. Uh, like I've said multiple times, we're all cursed with the same playing field uh, of life under the sun. And what we are called to do as believers is respond in such a way that the greatest commandment of Jesus is our guide. So that's our goal. How do we respond in such a way that we love our neighbor as our self? Uh, and in our passage this morning, we're shown two responses to this oppression. Two responses that are marked by the opposite of our goal. These responses show us uh, the ways in which we hate our neighbor and ultimately end up destroying ourself. And each of them is described uh, by giving us, and this is what I love about the preacher of Ecclesiastes, he is uh, a, a mental picture type uh, preacher. He gives us a mental picture of the shape of our hands. Uh, and that will make more sense as we get into it. Uh, but our first response is this. Uh, verse 5 in chapter 4 says this. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So that's our first posture or shape of the hands. The fool folds his hands. So how do we hate our neighbor and so destroy ourselves? 
Ecclesiastes would say this, we respond with arms folded. We respond with idle laziness. Uh, and there are a few ways that this plays out. Uh, often this can look like some sort of stoic indifference to the suffering and the oppression, uh, or just an ignorance of it altogether. Uh, go live on your land and never talk to anyone and never learn what's going on, and you can be indifferent to the oppression of the world. Uh, and this is why the Gospels are so important again, because we get to witness how Jesus himself in a human body responds to these things. Uh, and you make fun of it all you want, not that I ever have ever heard anybody make fun of it, but the WWJD bracelets can often be very, very helpful for you and I. And notice what would Jesus do in this moment? He's not indifferent. He's not stoic. He's not ignorant. He sees fully the suffering and the oppression of the world. And he's also not this. He's also not Mr. Rogers. He's not foolishly and naively optimistic as if the hurt is invalid. Uh, because he's going to heal them ultimately, so why should they even hurt or care? Jesus' arms are not folded, but rather they are often open. He's ready to touch and to serve and to work and to do whatever it takes on the front lines of loving his neighbor. There are two ways uh, in our nation to be guilty of a crime. The first is the obvious one. You commit the crime. Uh, but the second, though, is to stand idly by and offer no assistance. And all throughout Scripture, we learn that that's just as guilty and just as bad as committing it yourself. But the preacher says this in Ecclesiastes. He says that this self-preserving negligence, with arms folded and eyes closed, like a child trying not to listen and with their eyes closed and screaming, it's not the right response, and it ultimately leads to the opposite of what we hope for. Because to only focus on yourself is one of the surest ways to destroy yourself in the long run. But he says this too, the other, the other end of the scale is no good either. Verse 6 says this, Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. He says that our folded hands represent idleness and indifference and laziness. But now we see a different posture of the hands as if the two hands are cupped and ready to receive. He says that the two cupped hands often represent manic busyness. Uh, if folding our hands was a desire for self-preservation, he says that cupping our hands is a pursuit of self-promotion. Like a kid waiting at the doorstep for Halloween candy, as much as you'll give me, I'll take it all. Uh, we want it all. It's all about me. It's all about mine. This person looks at the brokenness of this life and says this. And again, this is where our American spirit can lead us in the wrong direction. This person says this, if I can work hard enough and gather enough and compete and complete enough and produce enough and just go and go and do and do, then my hands will be full and I will be happy. Right. Or at the very least, and I think more of us fall into this trap, at the very least, if I stay busy, I will never be still enough to see how truly unhappy I am. Right. We have a Weimaraner, which is a dog, 
uh, named Piper. Uh, if you know anything about that breed of Weimaraners, they are frantic, yes, and wide open. Uh, and a good example of living life this way is how Piper responds when we first let her out of her pen, which is mostly with pee, but uh, toys and blankets all over the floor in our house, and she goes crazy grabbing each toy, each blanket, moving from one to the next, one to the next, new toy, new blanket, new toy, jumping on us, peeing a little, new toy, new blanket, <laughs> whatever it is, she's frantically from one thing to the next. So as if there are so many toys and so little time, that's how she lives life, and that's how you and I live our lives. Uh, and here is the scary part for you and I. Uh, more, more of the world, I think, falls into this trap. But for you and I, we can fall into a different trap, which isn't merely uh, an endless pursuit of more stuff, but also an endless pursuit of good things, an endless pursuit of even serving people and helping people. Uh, author and pastor David Gibson says this, manic busyness is even endemic in Christian ministry. For it is a bottomless pit of good and godly gospel task to be completed. Uh, and here's how this plays out uh, in our lives. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a pastor named uh, Robbie Gallaty. He is uh, a, a very large man, a uh, beautiful large man. And he's the pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church uh, in Tennessee. And he talks about uh, a little bit of his story and his testimony is he was... Uh, on drugs and dealing drugs uh, and whatever picture you have in your mind, it was not that. He was not selling weed on the corner. He was, you know, Miami Vice meeting people at private airstrips and giving them suitcases full of dollar bills. Like crazy life story. Uh, but that was his life. Uh, and he spoke at a men conference uh, that I was at years ago. And something he said really stuck with me. Uh, he was encouraging and counseling any dads in the room. Uh, who have wayward children, just like he was. Uh, and, and he tells his story, and he talks about how he would come home, and uh, his dad would always try to keep him out, and his mom would let him back in. Uh, and he says this, and this is not prescriptive for how you deal with your child's waywardness or anything, but just the, the concept here. He said this to all the dads in the room. He says, Dad, as long as you keep being your child's Savior... Jesus never can be. And that stuck with me all these years. And uh, another pastor who's going to be with the Lord, a guy named Eugene Peterson, he says that often as Christians, we're infected with what he calls uh, the messianic virus. I love that. The messianic virus. Meaning we think we need to be the Savior for the people in our lives. And what this looks like is there are endless people to serve, endless good tasks to complete, endless good things for us to gather and accomplish for the good and the betterment of others. And the preacher would say to live this way with this manic, busyness, Messiah complex is to hate your neighbor and ultimately to destroy yourself. And then as we close, point number two is this, loving your neighbor and loving yourself. The third and the better option for us 
is found in yet another shape of our hands. Notice what he also says in verse 6. He says, better is one handful with quietness. Uh, the question then that is laid before us is this. Will we fold our hands and opt out of all work and all activity and all caring? Uh, or will we cup both hands and relentlessly chase the wind and be workaholics? Or will you and I be content with one handful? Be content with one handful and enjoy what we have with quietness. Here's some more of the Bible's wisdom on this. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better is a little with righteousness than large income with injustice. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Uh, one of my former pastors uh, said this in a sermon that he preached on this text. He said he's never had a young woman come into his office uh, in tears because her dad would drop her off at school uh, in a beat-up old Ford, uh, a 97 single-cab white one with red, red, a red bench seat, in mine and my dad's case. Uh, he said he never had a young woman coming into his office in tears because her, her dad would drop her off in an old beat-up Ford and, uh, and it embarrassed her so bad that she's never forgiven him. Or he's never had a young woman tell him uh, that she hates her dad because he didn't buy her a pony or pay for the ski trip or uh, whatever else. Uh, but he said he's had plenty of women in his office saying that their dad made all the money, paid for all the cars and clothes and college and whatever she wanted. Yet she's crying to him. She's crying to the pastor in his office because she said she had all the stuff but never knew the love of her father. For the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the value of your life is not found in what you can earn or obtain, but rather in being content to share what you do have with others. A good life is found in this. A good life is found in one handful and a quiet life. It's a life that is shared. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can't hold much in one hand. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes would say, that's enough. He says, two are better than one, and a threefold cord is not easily uh, broken. And this can be taken a lot of different ways, but I don't think the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, in this text is speaking of marriage or the Trinity or that two people plus God make a threefold cord. I think he's essentially saying this, uh, the more the merrier. Uh, why not four? Uh, a fourfold cord is stronger than three. Why not five or six or ten? To share life with others is a gift. And the more you have in your one handful, the more that you're able to share and to give. Amen. The posture or the shape of our hands that leads to gain under the sun is this. He says, as one hand holds... The other gives and serves. This means this. You love yourself by enjoying what God has given you. And you love your neighbor by sharing what God has given you. 
And the point, of the, the point that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to drive home is this, to be happy in this broken and frustrating life under the sun. We have to approach life as gift and not gain. God designed you and I to flourish on this earth. Uh, and sin has made that incredibly difficult. But as the writer continually invites us to do, whenever we look back at life on earth before sin in Eden, we're given a blueprint on how to live. Uh, here's how Adam and Eve flourished before the fall, before sin entered God's good world. Did Adam and Eve have everything and all knowledge and no limits? No. But they had enough. And they had each other. And they had God. And that is what God looked at when He said, this is very good. <laughs>